This is Common Decency, a Nomad London podcast. Checking in. Over the course of her career, artist Liza Liu has used beads to tell stories of survival, justice, and inequality. Through that material and the years working with it, Liza has learned about community, relationships, following her instincts, and how to respond to an ever-changing planet. She is an artist for whom place deeply matters. Her new work, up now at Lehman Maupin Gallery in London, is mesmerizing in its beauty. But beauty can be a hard place to reach for an artist, even when it's all around us. Coming up, Liza Liu shares her journey from South Africa to Joshua Tree, from where she started to where she is. I'm Howie Khan with Common Decency. Your new show at Lehman Maupin in London is called Desire Lines, and it's um, it's not just a poetic title. It, it means something. It, it's a term in in landscape architecture and landscape in, in general. So, what does this what does this term mean to you? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a term that means the kind of egress that people make happen naturally. So, you know, the, the town planners have the paths, but people trudge across the grass and create their own lines, uh, their own paths. And those are called desire lines. I mean, I think the less poetic way of describing that would be a shortcut, but we all do it in our lives. You know, this kind of idea that we're all trudging a path based on our preferences. Um, so I, I, I'm really interested in that in terms of my own work, where my, own, my, my hand tends to go or what kind of just kind of thinking about making work from an intuitive perspective, how intuition um, carves out desire lines. It's also, I think, a part of how you've moved around in, in the world, right? You've found yourself in South Africa in the early part of this century and the early aughts and kind of carved out this desire line for yourself there, right? You landed there didn't expect to be there very long and, and stayed for a very long time. So can you talk about what took you there and, and how following that desire line in, in South Africa evolved into something, you know, really unexpected and, and wonderful? Yeah. I mean, I think in some way a desire line involves this idea that you don't sort of have a choice. I mean, it's not intentional. You don't intend it. Your legs just move you there. You find your hands doing this thing. You don't sort of choose to fall in love with who you fall in love with. And, you know, you sort of find yourself in a place um, that you maybe didn't intend so specifically. And that kind of happened in South Africa. I mean, I, I definitely intended to get there, but I didn't know it would end up being 15 years of, of living and working there. It started with a brainwave kind of thinking what would happen if I worked with people who already work with glass beads because it's a, it's a whole landscape of, um, of making and there's other parts of the world you know living in LA I suddenly thought god you know there's other parts of the world where people are working with beads and it means something really different you know um, and, and I sort of thought I would go to India 
because there's a, a large tradition there, but I wrote to a nonprofit and told them, hey, you know, I'm this artist, I work in this material, where could I, how can I be of service? Is there somewhere I'm not looking for a grant? I'll, you know, I'll do the rest, but what do you think? And this organization called Aid to Artisans just said, hey, you know, you should go to South Africa. You should go to KwaZulu-Natal. At that time, it was 2005, it was the epicenter of the HIV epidemic. And there was unemployment that was up to 70% in the townships. And there's this huge wealth of bead workers there who, are, who don't actually have work. So it was this natural fit. And, um, and yeah, I love thinking about it like a desire line in the sense that, you know, here's this, it's unintended path. It's certainly not the path that I would have thought about as a, as a young artist, you know, as an art student or something like that. It's just, it was an amazing place to find myself suddenly to be in this, I thought about it as sort of the country of making, this place where even the, I remember the airplane get, come, going over there the first time, the, the tour guide had every, the bullet points were, were beads. And I thought, okay, this is it. I'm, I'm going to, this is home. I, and I was right. It really, truly was. It became my, my adopted country. The bullet points on your itinerary were yeah. <laughs> Im- images you know, the, of beads, or what, yeah, what yeah, the the um, you know the tour guide, you know, mm-hmm. the places to go, things to do, you know, it's like the, the bullet points were done in beads, and you just thought, okay, this is this is my country, clearly, you know, this is home, and it was almost like following, you know, like Hansel and Gretel, finding the the breadcrumbs were left along the way were beads, and yeah, I literally the material uh, meant one thing to me. Um, prior to going there and something entirely different it was like seeing the, the resonance of that material, the depth and the, um, the beauty and the, the loss embedded in an art material was, was, was really profound for, thing for me to discover. Um, firsthand, you know, it's one thing to read about how beads were used as currency. And it's another thing to live there and understand it on a physical felt lived experience, completely different. I mean, you know, the women I worked with, I would see them in my studio, of course, but then also run into them in the bead store. You know, they would be there buying them for their own work. And then I would see other women later, you know, selling what they were making on the on the streets. And I understood that if you could make something, you could survive. It was not a matter, an extra thing, like how we think about things in America or in the West. The beads are, okay, so in, in Durban, which is considered the most African city in South Africa, meaning that the, the majority population is, is African. Um, uh, so downtown is a very, very urban place, but it's fantastic. I mean, downtown Durban is, is so amazing because there's something called the Muti Market, which is where you get your monkey bones and you get your stuff to make, um, um, you know, kind of magic. So they call them sangomas, what we would maybe call witch doctor, which has negative connotations, but there it's deeply, deeply spiritual. It's about ancestor worship. So beads are, are mixed in with all of that ancestor worship. So near the Muti market is a um, an amazing place where you can, yes, get beads and you can buy um, bones and all kinds of wonderful things. Can you talk more about the relationship between beads and loss and beads and survival? One of the fascinations that I have around the material is seeing um, ancient peoples buried with beads. So you have them as a material that were kind of as the first currency. You know, the reason that beads have holes in them is so that, you know, how do you stop people from stealing what you have when you're a nomadic people? You sew them to your body, right? You attach it to your physical self. And then you get yourself buried with them. So there, there's loss there, but also, you know, um, beads being used in rituals from funeral rites, 
to, as they say, throwing the bones, which is um, what, what I was kind of describing with um, Sangomas, where you are having your fortune told, beads will be part of that too. So there's this kind of depth to the material. I think in the West, there's this misunderstanding, you know, people think of beads as glitzy or dazzling, which is an adjective I've always hated. You know, having your artwork described as dazzling is pretty much a death sentence. But, you know, it's sort of, it isn't a dazzling. It's, it's anything but. It, I mean, yes, things have a shine to them, but um, that doesn't give them less meaning. In fact, it, I think, gives more meaning. The first time I ever encountered Kitchen, which is a piece you spent years making, and it's a uh, life-size it's a kitchen. It's a whole kitchen. It's not a, a model to scale. It has everything a kitchen would have. And it's fully beaded. It's fully covered in beads. And the colors are uh, brilliant and hypnotic. And the process is intense, bead by bead by bead. I, I don't know if you counted. There's hundreds of thousands. I'm sure there's hundreds of thousands of beads in that that piece that took you five years to make. And the first time I ever saw it, what I thought was... Oh my God! She put armor all around a kitchen. She she protected this kitchen in in a surface that wasn't there before, and I thought that was amazing. I I, I thought the beads gave this domestic scene an incredible amount of strength and protection. Oh, that's such a nice description of that. I mean, that is kind of I never thought about it in that way, but you're absolutely right. I mean, every the surface is. Yes, is embalmed kind of, or you know, right? Like the, pl- over. the there's mm. plates, there's dirty, dirty dishes, but they're protected. There's a refrigerator, but it has a, a shield. But yeah, it seemed, it read like armor to me. Mm, I love that so much. Before you went to to South Africa, I mean, your your work has long held social messages, especially for issues surrounding women. What did you learn about how to talk about women in your art by living in in South Africa and not America? What issues then became important to you uh, to express and to explore because of where you put yourself? I guess I I was really, um, first of all, talking and thinking about a sphere that has to do with women you know, making the kitchen. I, when I started out, I it really, I don't think I understood the uphill battle on that as a subject. I didn't understand how fraught that was or how, how um, marginalized the work would be just for, for being, placing itself in that subject. You know, like I, I didn't really understand the depth of this. And it's a good thing because maybe I wouldn't have had the courage to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so sort of, I don't, I don't think it's really interesting, but, you know, sort of when you, when you kind of like look back, you go, wow, what, what on earth, how did I think I was going to shift that conversation? But, um, but working in South Africa um, and working with women who had a different set of struggles than, than, uh, and then an artist has for one thing, I mean, just let's just not even talk about being white, just the privilege of making art is, is a huge privilege there. You know, I mean, we had a lot of conversations early days with the studio team where they would say, so, you know, because the understanding is when you're working on something, you're working on something because you need to survive to make money. But the idea that you would make something and that your priority wasn't how it was going to sell was a totally different set of priorities. And that priority makes you very privileged. 
if, if the thing you're doing, you know, you have to be willing as an artist to, to make the thing you're making, regardless of whether or not it will sell. Right. So, I mean, that's not, that's not the starting point you have a day job so that you can have, you know, what we would call, I guess, artistic integrity. So, that conversation alone really made me think about what it is to be an artist, let alone, you know, sort of woman art, all that stuff. So that was the, the first piece that I had to kind of think about a lot and, and unpack for myself. And then sort of thinking about what it is to be a woman in Africa, what the women I worked with were up against, what they struggled with was, was enormous and, um, and humbling deeply, deeply humbling to, to know and be um, part of. And I, I really just listened and understood that I wasn't there to be the big teacher or the big leader. I didn't, I, they weren't lucky that I was there. <laughs> it was a fundamental uh, uh, thing that I think white people tend to do. And, and I certainly am not perfect. I don't have a halo, but I, I think something that was going for me was just a sense, a really deep sense that um, ah, that I was there to listen and learn and shut up as often as possible. You mentioned that your um, entry point into the art world was, you know, making this large scale work over a number of, of years by yourself. And I know being alone is actually a big part of your practice and, and continues to be. Did you go to South Africa alone? Were you with a, a partner? Did other artists come visit you? To what extent was it just Liza inserting herself into this new life by herself? Well, when I first went, I was by myself. And um, then my partner, I don't I don't know if we were married at the time. We were, yeah. And my husband, I call my husband, uh, came over. And it, the first time we were there, I think what happened was he, I didn't know I was going to stay. So it was like a, you know, I thought it was a small project I was doing and a one-time thing. So, you know, we was over there and and he's he's an artist. So he's, and he's really, I don't know, a pretty unusual human. <laughs> I mean, really wonderful and, and, and super like you, love these women you're gonna have to like he understood he, he just got it he was like i get it you you know he just saw the connection that was there it was just such an amazing connection and, and on every level um it was like when the project ended what we thought was going to end everybody was crying and um the women were like you know even when you're sleeping we love you i mean it's like stuff like that you know where you just felt like wow um there was just such a profound connection and it, it was so unusual and special. And, and my husband, Mick was like, you, we're going to have to stay. So we ended up sort of staying and like, we never, we never officially moved, you know, the moving truck never came, but little by little by little, we realized 10 years later, we were really living there. Even when you're sleeping, we love you. Sounds like a great name for a piece. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the women that I work with were very poetic, an incredible um, love of language. They had this poetic way of speaking and talking and, and seeing the world that was always like an astonishing thing. Like I would always be go in and, you know, like we would talk about the material, talk about beads, talk about color. And it was always, they always would bring it back to something that would be astonishing. Like it would be about nature or it would be about the crawl or uh, many of the, the women that I worked with were in transition from a very rural life into an urban life. 
So in um, 2005, democracy had only been there for 15 years. So it was a young, it was a very young democracy and the names of streets were changing. And um, uh, actually it was less because it wasn't, a, it was a, I think 10 years actually. So it was, it was this incredibly young democracy. So it was a sense of being part of something that was shifting and changing where from tribal clothing to very, to just wearing jeans, to um, women being very disconnected from the world to everyone having um, cell phones, which is um, they call the thing that cries in your pocket. How is it? <laughs> it a, a really is. And it never stops crying. <laughs> yes. The thing that cries in your pocket. Okay. So, you know, you go deeper and deeper on this desire line into South Africa. What changes did you start to see in your work? You know, the thing that that I tried to do sort of, and I think when that earlier question of like, how did, did people come to trust you and stuff? And I think, I think that was one of the real um, amazing things I think about being an artist and about having, you know, profit was not at the, at the, what you were there to do. You weren't there to like try to do things quickly and cheaply. You're there to actually listen and be an artist and, and play and, and have fun, you know? So that, that was part of, of the, of the mantra of the work. Like we're here to have fun. And, and, and as a result, I think I stopped, I stopped being so controlling about my work, you know, in the past, you know, making a kitchen, you know, this is this thing I'm going to make a kitchen. I didn't change my mind a year in and decide to make something else and let the work change as it wanted to change or listen to it. No, God damn it. It was going to be a kitchen. And I think being there, I realized that it was so sweet to be able to listen to the material or, or listen to the limitations that existed because of some of the challenges of living in that environment, you know, like everything from taxi strikes to, you know, where, where women, you know, was, you couldn't be as controlling about the work because the environment wouldn't let you be. Women had challenges in terms of just getting to an art studio. So that led to starting to weave so that people could work at home. And so that, that shift toward intuition, I mean, going back to your initial thing about desire lines is like really, I started to see the beauty of, you know, just the process alone of working with that material was enough. I didn't need to make a set piece the labor and the the hand day to day, like taking one bead and threading it and through the cotton and over and over again, that alone felt so poignant to me that I didn't need to make some big statement anymore. What we were doing in the process of doing it was was enough. So the ways in which life there was unpredictable to you enabled you to embrace abstraction. Mm. In, a, in a very wholehearted way, is what it sounds like. Yeah, I think I'd been wanting to make that leap for a really long time. It had been something, you know, like looking at, I did a piece after the kitchen, I made a backyard. And I right. I often, often looked at that grass and thought, God, I really should have just made the grass. I didn't need to go to all that other stuff. It's like the grass alone was so astonishing and so interesting. Did you, you, you made three pieces at least surrounding more actually surrounding the idea of imprisonment and incarceration, maximum security and security fence and cell. And these are all beaded riffs on, um, 
being imprisoned, essentially. Did you start those before you left or were those part of the work in South Africa and then kind of the end of this figurative beaded phase? Yeah, that all was prior to being yeah. in South Africa and then being there, it was it was sort of like, God, I certainly don't need to describe suffering. I right. Mean, that just seems like completely a moot point. And, and also, I think it, anyone right now listening to this who's been suffering through the pandemic knows that when you're truly in something, when you're truly suffering, you don't need to comment on it. In fact, what becomes more important than ever and necessary is beauty. And so um, I, I think that my work through those years became more and more about the necessity and importance of beauty um, as something to actually go toward. I mean, prior to that, I was sort of suspicious of beauty. I mean, it would make people probably laugh. Anyone who knows like the kitchen, really, you're suspicious of. But I was, I, I kind of was in the kitchen. I was almost dealing with something that was almost uh, an aspect of grotesquery, you know, kind of, I was interested in going as far toward that as I could until it teetered over mm-hmm. and maybe could get towards something beauty. But I was really, really heartened by, it'll make you probably laugh, is by Agnes Martin. You know, here was somebody who lived this very austere life. I was yeah, living the too. complete opposite, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and yet she it really heartened me here was that to, to read and realize that she, many artists, they went toward beauty. Mm-hmm. They weren't resisting it. And I think mm-hmm. I had been resisting it and going toward trying to do a kind of, um, if a material already contains this kind of aspect of, I don't know if beauty is the right word for the material, but um, decorative quality, then the, then the thing you want to do is go against it and make like a prison cell, right? Or a toilet or a, you know, a noose and a bucket, like something rough, something tough. And I think being in, 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 KwaZulu-Natal and seeing like the landscape there, incredible uh, African landscape, incredible, incredible landscape of grasses and fields and the, you know, that it just made me go toward it and not be afraid of it anymore. I stopped being afraid of it. I want to just keep going on the Desire Lines theme because I, I love it. I really do. So you left South Africa, went back, came back to America, and now you're building this practice uh, and studio in Joshua Tree, which is, you know, another place, I think, to which people are called, right? Carving another path there in, in the desert. So what what called you to, to this environment in particular, right? You didn't end up in the mountains. You didn't end up at the beach. Yeah, it's just, I think some people, it just really speaks to them. And you know, it, and then others that like really hate it and feel isolated there and kind of can't handle it. It was just so interesting too. I feel like it's sort of has this aspect of, you know, you're on planet Mars when you're out there in terms of the landscape. And um, it's just a place of deep quiet and um, solitude and, and a place to really think and work. It's weird that it's become like suddenly this hot spot in terms of real estate, mm-hmm. but oh well. I have this incredible photo that I've, I've seen of you where you're working outside uh, and, you know, you kind of, bring your your stuff with you set up a a roving kind of mobile studio and you're you're there amongst the the red rocks and and the blue sky and you're you're making your work can you tell me about setting yourself up for 
for that kind of freedom as an artist and, and what it means to you to be able to work outside the confines of a, of a studio and its, and its walls, to be able to take your, your things with you and create. It's just been such a, a cool kind of revelation. It was over this, over this last couple of years of the pandemic, um, I had some, a lot of upheaval with my studio practice just like in terms of a, a place to be, you know, just, I would find myself, I kind of found myself without a studio and like, you know, and then I had this space where it was really small and I was kind of, you know, you'd have to kind of like wedge yourself sideways to get things in and out. And it was just kind of like funny, you know, like, Oh my God, this is, this is nuts. And it had to do with the pandemic and moving and not being able to move properly and not being able to find something. So in the end, I kind of realized oh, I could just put all my art materials like in the back of my truck and just go. And then, I, and then I found like the largest art studio in the world, <laughs> you know, like, Oh my God, this is the biggest art studio in the world. And just the expansion, the idea of being outdoors and, and connecting with the kind of end plein air painters and the history of, of doing that and why it makes a difference. Why, you know, when Monet painted outdoors, why that was different than when he was indoors and, and painting against the light you know, against, you know, as the light is, you know, kind of painting against the fading light and the, you know, the, the wind blowing and the sense of urgency that if you don't put it down, it's not going to be there tomorrow. The shape, the, 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 there's going to be a shadow across the sky. And I'm not painting realistically. I'm really just responding to something I'm seeing. And then that, and then I'll bring it in the studio space and, and work it out. But there's this idea that outdoors, it's already so, you know, there's no way you could compete. There's like, the greatest art possible. But if you could just tap into even a touch of it, even put a, like a tiny bit of it in your own work. I mean, it's like, um, it seems as though the most amazing, most inspiring thing I could think, could think of in terms of what I would want to, where I would want to work. How often are you, you doing this? Pretty much every day, no matter where I am, I, I, I'll drag, you know, Target, little plug for Target. Uh, sells a $10 portable table <laughs> that folds. And it's just like one of these handy dandy things. Like you literally can work anywhere outdoors. And I don't really, I try to do it where it's private, obviously, but you know, and I have like this portable palette and I have, I just have my kit and I just drag it outdoors wherever I am. And it isn't that it isn't always that I'm responding to what I'm seeing. Sometimes I'll be outdoors and just weaving, but something different happens when when I'm outside, it just, it just, it feels primal. It feels connected to, I feel connected to, to making when I'm at, when you're in creation, I don't know. There's something about that that seems important. I don't know what's going to happen. We do have rain occasionally in California. So I don't know how this will play out this winter, but. I I think another thing that comes into focus when you're working outside and paying very close attention to nature and likely comes into focus anyways, but maybe more in a profound way when you're spending more time outside is, you know, this idea that nature is inspiring your work and adding perspective and and, and beauty even to your, your thought process. But the world is also on fire. A hurricane recently traveled fully over land from New Orleans to New York, laying waste to, to everything that, that got in its way. So... How does the threat of a warming planet, um, a, a planet that humans have ruined in, in a lot of ways, how does that get into your head 
and, and into your work as well? Well, I had a, you know, during South Africa, I, I've had a, the same um, actual studio for 20 years in America, in Topanga, which is in a mountain community in, in LA. And so, yeah, and I evacuated when I first moved there, maybe once, I don't think I ever evacuated for the first 10 years, but in the last five years, we evacuated maybe 10 times. And that meant evacuating my entire studio. And every time, because, you know, my studio was there, so everything, I would be in the middle of a show. And not only that, but we had floods. So flooding would come through the studio and I would, you know, so we got really nimble around, you know, the, you hear the fire siren. It was like a button pressed on the back, on my back, like one of those wind-up dolls. And I would literally go into like the mode of just put it in the box, put it in the box and then load it in the truck. And I think, I think at some point I just, it was similar to that response in South Africa when I realized you know, you're living inside of this tumultuous situation. And, but the problem is you're not actually listening. You're actually keep trying to make work as though everything is control it within your control. Stop it. Stop it. Stop the death grip. Let go. And I, I learned that being here, it took me longer in America, oddly, maybe because speaking of those neural pathways, mine were very grooved and entrenched in the idea that I had some control. And it was like, let go and just see that you're, you're constantly loading the art materials into the back of the truck. What part are you not listening to? Make that your studio. Work from that place. Work from the place of uncertainty. Work from the place of, of not knowing, of always being on the move. Stop this idea that it has to be in the, you know, you know the, the, the New York idea, right, of like uh, having the big loft or whatever. Stop it. Stop it. And listen. Just listen. Okay, is another fire. Here we go. Put it carefully in the car. Drive away. Now work. Work in the hotel. Work in the, you know, I mean, I literally in the last couple of years have worked in every possible situation and done it. It's been great, actually. You know, you can, that when the art starts to respond to what is, then you, I feel like you can really tap into something. So yeah. for the last two years, all of my work was made through that, the idea of, of fire and flooding and and loss, you know, yeah. rather than this idea, like uh, it's going to go back to normal. What kind of fantasy is that? I know that you've also been walking and, and hiking a lot. And I was wondering if you could unpack what that means to you and how it helps move things along in your head and in your work. I mean, there's such a great tradition of walking and thinking, right? I mean, writers do it. That seems like it's a, it's a real, um, an activity for writers, but I think it's like, especially, um, in nature when you can, I, don't, I, I always think about this idea of collecting color when I'm walking. So I try to really use it as a time to, to be really present and, and feel the, have a felt experience and not just blast through, you know, like blast through the landscape. I, I drive a lot too. So there's a lot of like driving back, you know, in LA we drive a lot, but also driving out to the desert a lot. So there's just a lot of like ground under the feet. And I feel like if, if you're really present, like if you try not to think and get into thinking mind too much and really stay present, like really keep in that art brain, like, wow, life, life can be pretty astonishing. I mean, you're kind of like living in this incredible painting. So yeah, walking and hiking is, is really an important part. I feel really not so good if a day goes by and I don't do it. Okay, so now, now here's the, the circle back to the title of our, our show, which is, it's common decency. 
And it's mm. kind of from a, a belief that I think art in public does some good for the world. I think artists extend a measure of common decency to viewers by creating the art itself. So the question that goes with that for me is, uh, what good are you attempting to achieve with the things that you make? Well, I think first to take out the idea of do-gooderism, because I don't think anything good happens with an effort to be good. Mm -hmm. I think good happens as a result of, of, uh, as a response, you know, as a, you know, like do the next right thing. You know, that idea that you, something is in front of you, you respond in an ethical way, you respond with generosity. So you don't sort of set out to do good. The moment you do that, it goes into pity. It goes into, you know, whatever. So I think, I think that's the first place, but as an artist, you know, I just, I just did a road trip, another road trip. We just drove to San Francisco to see the Joan Mitchell show. And it's, you got to go see it. It's incredible. It's going to be, I think in Baltimore too, but if you're in the West, but incredible show and, and a great reminder, you know, speaking of someone who spent, you know, like a 50 year, the 50 year plan, um, why art matters and why, um, why the struggle to make art, why it matters, because I was standing in front of some of those pictures and I had like full head, you know, like the full body, like radiating, goose bumping, mm-hmm. this shit matters. And it might not matter to anybody else. It really, really, really mattered to me. And it really made a difference. So thank you, Joan. You know, so it's like that thing of like, just do the thing you do and do the right thing and do it as well as you can. And hopefully it can mean something to someone else, but at least if it means something to you, right? So asking those bigger pictures, like, does it matter to the world? Well, God, how can any of us do that? But we could just say, I mean, Joan did it. And this was a really flawed, really fucked up individual, but out of her came such immense beauty. And I mean, I was just completely gobsmacked by it. And I think that that's, you know, I I actually had that moment of thinking actually almost very similar to that question you just asked, you know, it's kind of like, that question that people ask all the time, like, does art matter? And it was like, yes, <laughs> it matters to me. And it's like, and if we could, every one of us, if, if a lot of us can say that, then, you know, then we're winning. Profoundly, yes. Liza, thank you so much for being here with me today on Common Decency. I appreciate you. I'm excited for your upcoming show and to follow your career as you continue to do wonderful meaningful things thank you thank you so much this was fun that was liza Liu. her new show desire lines runs through november 6th at lehman maupin gallery in london her work will also be featured in the gallery's presentation at freeze from october 13th through the 18th For reservations at The Nomad London, it's www.thenomadhotel.com slash London. Thank you for listening to Common Decency. Our show is produced by Rob Corso, Casey Kahn, and me, Howie Kahn, for Freetime Media. Our theme music is by John Palmer. Special thanks to Fiona Russell, Jennifer Joy, Sarah Levine, Andrew Zobler, Isadora McKeon, Kristen Millar, and Stefan Merriweather. Common Decency will return soon with a brand new guest.
This is Common Decency, a Nomad London podcast. Checking out 